Well, you, you know those words of the prophet Isaiah in chapter 52. How beautiful are the feet of him who brings good news. And perhaps one of the most famous examples of, of this kind of uh, messenger bringing good news, uh, at least in popular culture, is the, the story of Philippides in, in Greece in the, in the 5th century before Christ, before our Lord. There was a battle at Marathon. There was, there was quite a, a big doubts in the, in the hearts of the Athenians whether they would win or lose. But they had made the decision if they lost uh, that they, if, or if they heard nothing, uh, they would assume that the battle had been lost and they would burn their city down so that the, the enemy would not lay hold of it. Just so happens that the battle at Marathon was won, and Philippides ran those 26 point, I believe, two miles uh, from Marathon to Athens, and he brought the good news: we have won. As they were preparing themselves to destroy and burn their city down, and as soon as he said these words, he fell down dead. Because he was exhausted from running those 26 miles. Even to this day, the marathon is 26.2 miles, give or take, the same length. And it is known as marathon because of the place of the battle. And there is no doubt in my mind that Eli, the priest, he was watching at the entrance of the city, expectantly to hear a report from the battlefield. It is said that anxious watchers could guess as they saw the person coming over the hills, coming down the hills in the horizon. They could say, they could, they could sense by the, the demeanor, the, the way that the person ran, whether the, the news would be good or bad. This is in a time, by the way, before telephones, before internet, before all of these things. If you want to receive any news, you need to wait for someone to come, a herald, to bring those news. Probably Eli, although he didn't notice because he was blind or growing blinder and blinder uh, with his old age, but probably his fellow citizens... In Shiloh, they would have understood when they saw, saw him. As soon as they saw him. Verse 12 says that this man from Benjamin, this man uh, who is from Benjamin, he ran, he ran the, from the battle line the same day and came to Shiloh. His clothes were torn, dirt on his head. You wonder if... If his clothes were torn and if the dirt was on his head because he had been fighting and he just barely escaped from, from death, you wonder if he was, even as he's making his way back to Shiloh, going through this mourning period, he knew what had happened. This is indicative to pour dirt and ashes over one's head, to torn his clothes. He is in mourning as well. I wonder which of the two... He ran for 20 miles through rough terrain. 
yet however great uh, his strength and valor, his arrival there was not one of joy, not one of victory, like with Philippides, but it was, uh, his feet were not beautiful in that sense, but uh, his appearance there was harbinger of bad news of what had happened. As Eli waited, we read in verse 13 that Eli was sitting on a seat by the wayside, watching, which is interesting because we are told that he's blind. So here the watching is not so much watching with the eyes. He's, he's being a watcher. He's keeping a watch. This old man is there keeping a watch uh, over what's going on. And we are told that he was pessimistic, that he was apprehensive, that actually his heart was trembling for the ark of God, which is interesting, because if you remember what had happened last, uh, that we looked at last week, uh, as soon as the ark went, there was this sense of invinci invincibility on the part of the camp of Israel. They thought they, they could not be defeated. They shouted in such a way that the earth beneath their feet shook. But here is Eli, his reaction is completely different from those of his peers, of his fellow countrymen. So what did Eli know? What did Eli know that the army in the battlefield didn't? That the Philistines who feared and trembled did not know as well? Why was he trembling for fear as he was waiting for the news? Well, I think there are two answers to this question. Number one is that Eli had received prophecy, and we already seen it. In chapter 2, an unnamed anonymous man of God came and said to him, because Eli was complicit, because Eli allowed his sons to sin in the tabernacle and in the service of the Lord, the man of God said that this will be a sign to you. Ophni and Phineas, your sons, will die on the same day. And this same prophecy, prophecy was confirmed, as we saw a few weeks ago as well, in chapter 3, by Samuel. It was Samuel who said to, reconfirmed to uh, Eli, in verse 13 of chapter 3, we read verse 13 of chapter 3, for I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knows, because his sons made themselves vile and he did not restrain them. So he knew. He knew that this was about to come. And isn't it interesting, brothers and sisters? Some of you will know this from personal experience. That it's when one knows himself to be guilty that even the smallest of things makes, makes you be fearful. Even the falling of a leaf, even the, just the crackling if you, uh, uh, of a, uh, or the, the cracking of a door well, it, when it's opening. It's like everything is on, puts you on edge because you know you're guilty. The hearts of sinful men are always to be uneasy in times of danger. John Calvin, he said this with much wisdom. 
He who is the boldest despiser of God is of all men the most startled at the rustle of a falling leaf. He who is the boldest despiser of God is of all men the most startled at the rustle of a falling leaf. But there is a second reason why I believe Eli uh, was fearful, was trembling in his heart. And I think has to do with what they had just done. You see, yes, the ark of God often, uh, a few times in the history of Israel, went, went into battle. But it was, always the, on the, uh, it was always God commanding the people to go out and do battle. It was always God telling the people what to do. It was always God commanding them to go forth. Yes, in all of Israel's great victories as they were coming into the land, the the ark and the the presence of God was there, but it was God commanding them. And here, and I presume that Eli had a sense for this. He knew that what was being done was on the, the other way around. It was the people trying to command God to fight for them. It's the arrogance. And I think Eli, with all his flaws and defects he he knew he must have known he must have lost his peace because he knows who god is there is no doubt uh, with ophni and phineas we are told that they didn't know who god was they didn't know god but eli is never we are never said that he didn't know god and it is in fact assumed with all his flaws that he knew God. He knew that God is not a God who is persuaded by man's arrogance. And this is what the Israel was doing. They were being arrogant. And God will not allow himself to, to be mocked in this way. So the messenger arrives. And the, the idea that we get here is that the messenger uh, flew or, or entered through a different city gate, maybe, or uh, passed through, uh, through Eli, and Eli didn't uh, see, see him or, or feel his, or uh, uh, was not told or warned of his presence. But Eli heard the uproar. In verse 4, we, we, in chapter 4, we see that he heard the uproar. There was something happening. The city was crying out. And when he, he, he heard the noise of the outcry, he, he, he asked, what, what does all this tumult mean? What is, what is going on? So the man came quickly to Eli. And we are told Eli now uh, is 98 years old. And he told him, and his eyes were growing dim so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who came from the battle. And I fled today from the battle line. So Eli asked him, what happened, my son? And I guess when you're 90, 80 years old, you can call everyone you, you come across your son. Uh, what happened, my son? The messenger answered and said, Israel fled the Philistines. And there's this rehearsal of what's, uh, what's go- what happened. The, he's telling, them, telling Eli part by part. So first of all, first bad news. The Philistines uh, won the battle. 
the Israelites fled. Second bad news, there was a great slaughter among the people. Oh, by the way, third bad news, your, your sons, Ophni and Phineas, are dead. And then the, 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 the punch, the, the worst of all, and the ark of God has been captured. The ark of God has been captured. I, I think, Eli, this was what, what threw Eli over the edge. He knew. He knew already. He probably even knew that that was the day that, that Ophni and Phineas were to die. But he never imagined that God's ark would be taken away. He never imagined that God's judgment for his and his sons for sin would be fallen on all the, the nation. His sin befell on everyone. It is the shock of this new that, ev- that, that literally killed him. Then it happened that when he had mentioned of, uh, the ark, that's when Eli falls from his seat backward by the side of the gate and his neck was broken and he died for the man was old and heavy and he had judged Israel 40 years this is a depressing passage. We are told, aren't we, that, that, that his heart was uneasy, that his eyes were blind, that he was old. Even I, the only sense I can get from the heavy here is the, the sense that he was uh, fat, obese, that he, probably because of the, the theft of dedicated meats. But there's a wordplay here that needs to be mentioned as well. That something that we should pause and, and, and understand. The word for heavy here, or the word uh, that is translated as heavy here, is the word kaved, kaved, um, which is literally translated as heavy. And the word for glory, which is the glory that departs, is kavod. And you can actually see that in the name of, of ikabod, right? Ikabod. So the word for heavy is kaved. And I think the wordplay is quite subtle here, but it's quite, quite intentional. Here's Eli, he's heavy, in a sense he has fattened himself with, it, with, it, with, the, with the glory, is, uh, glory and, fat, uh, and, and heaviness is, is the same thing, that's the weight of God's glory is said, right? And this, here's this man, he's heavy, he has f- uh, fastened on himself his own significance, he's robbed in this sense of, uh, of God's glory. His sons took precedence over everything. So God removed his glory. His kabod. His kabed. He has been kabed. And so God removed his kabod. And there is a, a, a wordplay here uh, that, that is interesting. That will carry on playing out in the, in the coming chapters. So Eli fell, he broke his neck. In fact, if you know the rest of the story in the next chapter, that is exactly what's going to happen to Dagon, the, the statue of, of, the, of the Philistine god. He's going to fall and break his neck as well. Again, we're meant to see these, these things and we're meant to see something is happening and something we are being told. 
But the, the greatest question here for us, perhaps, is why did this happen? How did Eli arrive at this, at this place? How did Eli become so corrupt? Or how did his house become in this state? We're not told, are we? We're not told what were the processes, what were the, the steps that were taken by Eli that eventually led him at 98 years old to be in this, in this state and to have judgment pronounced upon him. But one thing is certain. But, uh, Peter, he, he usually calls it uh, the, the thin edge of the, of the wedge. I, I guess that's a, an English saying, the thin edge of the wedge. One decision here, one compromise there, one overlooking this sin, one overlooking that sin. I'm guessing that's how it happened with Eli. It wasn't that he started off badly. I think, as I said, I think Eli is presented to us as someone who... Uh, in many ways is wrong and has many faults, but there is a sense of, of knowledge of God. There is a sense, of, although he's not godly in his living, that it, there is a, a fear of the Lord still somewhere there. And I'm guessing that it, this didn't happen from one, uh, in one day. And one morning he wakes up and he says, oh, you know what, I'm going to do this. I'm not going to pay any more attention to these old kind of things. I'm not going to discipline my children. I'm not going to do this. I'm going to allow everything to happen. I'm guessing it never happened like that to him. Because it never happens like that to anyone, does it? We gently start deviating ourselves. I'm trying to remember the quote from C.S. Lewis uh, in his uh, letters, screw tape letters, you know the screw tape letters. He, it's the the, the conversation, fictitious conversation between a devil and his apprentice, and he's trying talking about how how uh, to deceive Christians. And there is one point, and I, I'm going to paraphrase it because I don't remember. There's one point where the the uncle, the, the main devil, is advising his uh, his apprentice, his nephew, and he's saying, look. Don't make signs. The, the, in a sense, the road to, to uh, ungodliness for the, is, is, is very, uh, it's not very steep. It doesn't have signs. It's very gentle. You, you just go down it and you don't realize. Something like that, but that is the truth. But make no mistake. As Paul said, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will also he reap. For the one who sows to, in his own flesh will, reap, uh, will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to, in the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. We sow, we then reap. And that's what probably has happened here. And that's why the Apostle Paul says that we are to renew our minds. Renew our minds in God's words. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, by the that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. How are we to, uh, to 
cure or, or, or how are we to, to counteract those tendencies that we all have? It's not just them outside, it's not just my neighbor. We all have this tendency by going constantly back to the words, renewing our minds, not being conformed to this world, discovering what is the will of God time and time again. So in the passage concludes here, and then we have this second episode, which is a very sad episode. Very unusual as well in the, in the Old Testament uh, to see an episode like this. It's the daughter-in-law, the Phineas' wife. We're told she's pregnant. And when she hears the news that the Ark of God is captured, not the news that, is, uh, that her husband had died, but the news that the Ark of, the, of God was captured and, that it, and then that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, this, the, the, the emphasis is first in the Ark of God and, the, and that she bowed herself and gave birth for her labor pains came upon her. This woman, again, we don't know her story, but... Think about the things that are implied in this text about this woman. She's married with Phineas. You think that she's very privileged. She's married with a, uh, to a priest. She's the daughter-in-law of another priest. Her, her, her brother-in-law is another priest. What a godly family. But then you realize, don't you, what we already know about Phineas and Ophni. Their behavior with the, with the, with the sacrifices and their behavior with the women that attended, that came to the temple. And you realize this poor woman must have known about this. If all Israel knew, certainly she knew what was happening. But she had a son with him. And she bore a son, which would be the high point of any woman's life, especially if it was the firstborn. But she didn't answer. She didn't pay attention. She did not regard it. Uh, regard it. Why? Well, the answer is in the name that she gave the son, Ichabod. The glory departed. Glory is gone. No glory. The ark of of of, the, of God has been captured. And again, you might imply from this that it seems that she has a sense of something spiritual in her. That she knows something of what the Lord is doing. You can even compare it with, with Anna and her situation. But she knew. Ichabod. Glory gone. The glory departed. And we sometimes we can be like that, can't we? at the sight of things happening in our lives, tragic events. It might seem to us that, glory's got, uh, that God's glory has evaporated, that God's glory is departed, that God's power is less powerful, or His presence is less accessible. So what do we do with this? What, how do we, as Christians, when we find ourselves in a very similar situation to this woman, Phineas' wife, what do we do with it? 
The Apostle Paul says, citing Moses, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ uh, up from the dead. What, what Paul is saying is, our confidence is in the Lord's gracious presence, uh, in the Lord's gracious presence, does not require some kind of manifestation of someone coming down or, bringing, or being brought up, or some reversal. We don't need those things. Paul says, the word is near you, the word is in your mouth and in your heart. How is God present with us amid tragic events like the one that happened to Phineas' wife? Like the ones that we go through regularly in our lives? How do we know that God, with, God is with us, that God is present? By his word. God is near us as the word incarnate. It is a sad story, this one, in chapter 4. It gets better. <laughs> Next chapter, we, we see something of God's reversal of this. But this is a sad story. And this is a story that should lead us to, to contemplate, shouldn't it? It's a story that should lead us to think of what happened then and what might happen now in our own context in our own situation you might say oh no that's the only an old testament thing we live in in the new covenant in the new covenant no such thing happens does it not have you read uh, the book of revelation those seven churches does it not happen today it, it is a thing that happened often or a few times in the Old Testament. I think the only other two times that, that perhaps uh, hit lower than this in the history of Israel is the captivity in Egypt and later on the captivity in, in Babylon. These three events are, are three significant events in the, or low points in the, in the history of Israel. But it does happen in our own day. It happens not only with churches, it happens with individual believers, true believers. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul says. And how do we grieve the Holy Spirit? If you read the context, by behaving worldly, by, by ungodly living. In a sense, we can... Uh, experience something of the loss of God's presence, of his countenance, of his face shining upon us. I don't think that is uh, unbiblical or denying anything uh, in, of the promises of the Lord Jesus in the New Testament. The Confession of Faith says this. We, you might remember it from, a, from months ago when we were looking at the Confession. True believers may in various ways have the assurance of their salvation shaken, decreased, or temporarily lost. This may happen because they neglect to preserve it or fall into spe some specific sin that wounds their conscience and grieves the spirit. 
This is the confession saying uh, as well that it may happen through some unexpected or uh, uh, forceful temptation or when God withdraws the light of his face and allows even those who fear him to walk in darkness and to have no light. Of course you cannot have the assurance of salvation if you're living like the world. Isn't that what David prayed in Psalm 51? Cast me not away from your presence. Do not take your spirit from me. In the case of Eli and his sons, the, 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 the glory, the presence was removed because of sin, of sacrilege uh, uh, of his sons and of the idolatry of the people and the, the, the sexual sins that, that they were committing, uh, the sons were committing with the, uh, with the, the people. But isn't the same thing in the, in the days of Jerusalem? This is in the days of Shiloh, in the days of Jerusalem. Turn to Jeremiah. What do you read there? Why did God's, uh, remove his, God remove his presence from, from Jerusalem? In, in Jeremiah 20, uh, chapter 2. Because you defiled my land. And make my heritage an abomination, God says. My people have changed their glory for, what, for that which is, does not profit. And God, what did he do in the days of, of Jeremiah and, and Ezekiel? His presence came out of the temple. And it specifically says that his presence went into the east. Just memorize that fact that God's presence came out of the temple and went to the east. Because I think it is relevant here. And it's the same thing in the New Testament with the Revel churches in Revelation. We are meant to see this passage as a warning to us, both individually and as a church. That Ichabod can be written. That Ichabod can be written in, in the church door, spiritually speaking. And you might say, I don't think that, that is the case. Have you went around London? How many churches this great city had in the past? And now they're converted into flats, into restaurants, torn down to build high rises. Have you seen that? Is that not Ichabod being written over those churches? When I was working, uh, when I was studying in seminary, I did some delivery driving. Uh, and I used to work more in, around the area of Finchley and the seminary. And there was this one particular restaurant that I had to go time and time again in Muswell Hill, uh, a steakhouse. And it was beautiful. It was a, <laughs> not beautiful, but it was something to, to behold. It was an old Anglican church that had been converted into a steakhouse. Very posh, very fancy. It was, it was something that, that made you think. A regular customer of mine, uh, or of the, the company I worked for, uh, they used to, uh, to request deliveries. He w lived in a flat in Archway. There was a, a church building that had been converted into a, into a set of flats. What this tells me, at some point, God wrote Ichabod over those churches. Places where God's word was preached. Places where, where God's people met. At some point, God, word, 
God's spirit was removed from that place. A hundred years ago, it might have been a hundred, a hundred and fifty years ago, it might have been the liberal movement that Spurgeon, uh, uh, that great preacher, uh, fought so hard against both in the, in the mainline denominations and in the, in the evangelical Baptist circles, where people, uh, the people of God, ministers, people who, who said that they were priests, in that sense, priests, they were saying that God's word was not inerrant. They were saying that God's word was, uh, was, was not full, uh, that, that the Bible is not God's word. They were uh, spewing and teaching heresies like evolution and secular humanism was replacing the, God, the preaching of the gospel. Is that not grieving the Holy Spirit? Is that not why many of these big denominations have had their buildings closed and they've seen their, 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 their congregations dwindle and dwindle to the point that they've started to fuse together and, and, and bring Methodists and Episcopalians and all of it together just to have a sense that they have a little bit more number and a little bit more impact? But it's not just them, is it? Is it not what's happening in evangelical circles today? Is it not happening in our circles today? Where it seems like the Lord is working so marvelously, so, so miraculously in, in other places in the world. You hear of what God's doing in, in, in the global south, as it's called, in Africa, in Asia. Even in countries in Europe, I must say. And you realize that God is saving greatly. And the gospel is going forth with much power. And then you look at our situation here. In churches up and down this land. And you ask, why is it? Is it not that God is writing Ichabod? Is it not that God... He's removing the candlestick. It should cause us to wonder, is it not because the worldliness that we have, the idolatry, the ungodliness? So what is the answer? I'll finish. But what is the answer? Let's say that we agree, that you agree. Let's say that we see this. Is there any hope? God has written Ichabod over a nation, over a church, over an individual. Is there any hope? There is. There is always hope. The Lord says, return to me. Zechariah 1 Verse 3, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you. You see, God's purpose in withdrawing himself in this passage, in 1 Samuel, God's purpose in withdrawing himself in Jerusalem, in the days of Daniel, in the days of Sadrach, Mesach, and Abednego, and he went west. God's purpose in withdrawing himself was never to be a judgment uh, uh, by itself. It also represented something of God chastising, yes, 
but something of God's grace in all of it. We know that by now because we've been reading through 1 Samuel and we know that God is at work raising up Samuel to be his uh, herald, to be his prophet. But in the days of, of, uh, of Jerusalem, uh, when the, the people were taken from Jerusalem to Babylon, isn't it interesting that in Ezekiel it says that God's uh, presence left the temple and went eastward? What was to the east of Israel? Babylon was to the east of Israel. You know what's being said there? God, God's presence, although he removed it from the temple, God's presence went before the people into Babylon. God's presence was with Daniel in Babylon. God's presence was with Sadrach, with Meshach, with Abednego in, in, in Babylon. God's presence was not fully withdrawn. He still had for himself a remnant. And perhaps the greatest example of this is when God, the presence of God's glory came and incarnated into this world in the person of our Lord Jesus. What is the, the, the example of God's glory departing if not, Israel, uh, if not the cross in Calvary? Where our Lord, where God took the punishment that was coming to his people. Exactly what happened here in, in 1 Samuel, right? Who was sinning? Israel was sinning. Who took the, the, the who was led captive? God was led captive. That's what happened here. That's what happened in the days, in, in, in the days of our Lord's ministry on earth. There was an Ichabod. But the Ichabod, the removing of God's presence, was actually the greatest grace and blessing that we could ever have asked for. The glory of God was removed from the earth. All that the Ark of the Covenant symbolized, the presence of God, the, the atoning blood that was uh, 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 spilt over the Ark, all that the, the, the presence of the Ark or the Ark symbolized in our Lord Jesus was there. God's glory in our Lord Jesus, God's presence, God's way, only way of salvation. And as he died, darkness came upon the world, covered the earth. For three hours, darkness was there. Yet it was the greatest, greatest blessing ever. Because Jesus was not ultimately taken away. He was taken away, but he rose from the grave on the third day. So you see that the answer for the Ichabod, the answer for the, the Ichabods of our own life, the Ichabods of our own congregation, the Ichabods of, of our nation's situation, the answer for the Ichabod is Emmanuel, another Hebrew word. Emmanuel, God with us. The answer for the glory departing is to return to the Lord so that God, and God returns to us. Return to me and I will return to you. Though we should rightly be abandoned by God's presence, the gospel, the good news of the gospel, the good news of salvation, the good news that are, is heralded today to you. Although you should be abandoned by God's presence, the good news is that in, the, in Christ there is forgiveness and there is acceptance. 
As Paul said, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So what is it that we will do with it? If you're not a believer, if you're not, if you if you sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, of the kabod of God, if, kabod, if the kabod of God, the glory of God has been withdrawn, go to Christ and he will heal you. And for those of us who have been healed, those of us who have known that the answer to Ichabod is Emmanuel, those of us who have received, God is sending us as heralds to tell of the victory over, over sin in the battle of Calvary. God has called us to be the spreaders of those good news. To be those whose feet are beautiful for taking the gospel out there. We no longer have a message like the, the Benjamite man. We have a, a, a message not that defeat happened at Shiloh, but we have a message that victory over sin, death, the devil has been won at Calvary. So let us take it out. And let us remember how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Amen.